welcome again uh, to Stonehouse Church. Just up the road here, there is a place called Dairy Inn, and uh, they serve a delicious treat known as a Reese's Peanut Butter Chocolate Supreme, or something similar to that. Uh, I have a, a particular knack for this treat. I like it very much, and a couple weeks ago, Kelly and I, my wife, uh, said, you know, I, I could go for one of those. And so we went over to Dairy Inn. It's on 9th Street over here. They should be paying me to say this. And uh, I, I walked up to the cashier to order my typical Reese's Peanut Butter Chocolate Treat uh, with vanilla soft serve. And the cashier says to me, before, before you order, you should know uh, that we are out of vanilla soft serve. That is what is known as a deal breaker. So... I am disappointed. I am like, well, uh, sorry, thanks, but uh, that vanilla soft serve is really the thing that kind of pulls it all together for me. All of the other flavors surround that vanilla soft serve, both in flavor and texture. So what did I experience in that moment? Disappointment, right? Now that is uh, a very small-scale disappointment. I get it, but, but I had everything in place to, to get this treat that I wanted, right? I had the money, had the car, the transportation, the palate that was ripe for enjoyment, um, but something went awry, right? I was disappointed. I had an expectation that wasn't met, and I get it that this is like trivial and silly, but when we really look at life, it is filled with disappointment, is it not? Big ones, small ones, some of them are small, like these denied creature comforts. Others of them are huge. People disappoint us. We disappoint other people. Our jobs are disappointing. Our marriages are disappointing. Our spiritual lives are disappointing. The church, the sermon, the pastor disappointing, right? I'm not saying that there are no good things in all of these. Certainly, there are. But pressure in life reveal that our hopes are often unfulfilled. We're disappointed people. And, and the, the Bible says that one of the major causes of this is exile. Let me pray and we'll dive in. Lord, thank you for your grace in bringing us here, in giving us life, and keeping us alive, and providing the many, many things that you provide for us daily, that we overlook, that we attribute often to self-sufficiency or other similar things. Thank you for looking down on us and seeing longing and disappointment and doing something about it. And this morning, as we talk about it, as we look at it, I pray that you would use me to help us see that more clearly. Lord, you know I need help. So, Lord, help us this morning. Help me. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Unfold your word for us. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we've been walking through a series called A Far-Off Country. It's about exile. It's about the people of God and the exile that they are sent into. Uh, that phrase comes from a C.S. Lewis quote, which you will hear in full, I believe, next week from Derek. So we've been building your anticipation for that, the context of the phrase. But essentially, the phrase explains something about humanity, 
right? It, it describes that we are not quite at home. We live on earth. This is our dwelling place. This ought to be our proper home, but there's something inside of us that just knows we're not quite there, right? Home is a place where relationships flourish, where things work well together, where there is harmony and life and peace and rest, and we frequently are missing these things. We're covering two books in your English Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah. Historically, this has been one cohesive work, Ezra and Nehemiah. It was one book telling one story, and so I have the privilege and the challenge of preaching 23 chapters to you this morning. I promise we won't go verse by verse, so you can have lunch on time. Um, but Ezra and Nehemiah assumes that the, the audience understands the context. Um, as we walk through the series, we've, we've been seeing that God has chosen a people for himself. And these people he promised to love, to lead, and to prosper. And as he entered into that relationship with them, after he delivered them, he, he basically gave them a set of ground rules for the relationship. Uh, he gave them his words to live by, or the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He gave them a temple, a place that they would build. It started out as a tabernacle, which is sort of like a, a portable temple in which he would dwell in. This would be the means by which God would commune with his people. So if you wanted to see God or know God or hear from God, you, you would go to the temple. And there are all kinds of rituals and rites and completions and things that you had to do because it wasn't a frivolous thing to meet with the sovereign God of the universe, right? And then he said, I will give you a land to dwell in. I'll give you a city and I will protect your borders. I'll protect you from enemies. You will prosper there. And so he says, okay, I've loved you, I've delivered you, and I gave you these things. We've got a deal, right? This is what relationship with me looks like. I did my part, you do yours. And what happens? I think we know the Israelites fail. They don't hold up their end of the bargain. They're unfaithful. They start chasing other gods. They start worshiping false gods. They start oppressing the poor. They're not living according to God's law. And so in light of this, God is like, look, I have to judge you for this. It is not okay for you to continue doing what you're doing. And so like a loving father would do, he disciplines the Israelites. And this discipline is going to come through exile, and he promises that it will come through exile. And he says it's going to be 70 years long and all these false prophets rise up and say, look, it's really not a big deal, guys. Don't worry about it. Um, it. It might be like two years, but it'll be fine. Everybody's overreacting. Well, you know, they were lying. Um, and so better hard truth than false hope. So we ought to take the words of God seriously. Um, and so in light of all this, God sends his people into exile as a righteous judgment upon them. And it is important to recognize that God does not delight in doing this thing. It is not as though he sits back saying, okay, I can't wait until they trip so I can punish them. 
His heart is, is desirous of their good. He wants them to thrive. But if you look in the book of Jeremiah, he's like, what will you have me do? You are continuing in this thing. Please stop. Turn back to me. He's pleading for them. And they just won't listen. So Israel is in exile. It's important that we understand exile is more than just geographic displacement. It's probably hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around this reality, but really, uh, for the Israelites, this is kind of a trauma. It's a traumatic event. They're uprooted from everything that they know and love. Their identities are on the line here. Uh, professor of Old Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary, Ian Duguid, says that exile is more than not having a home. It is having a home and being without it. You see the difference? It's more than simply not having a home. It's having a home and being without it. It's knowing your home, loving your home, having all of these glorious things about home that you enjoy and thrive in, and then having that snatched away from you. It's like a musician that is without an instrument. If you're a musician and you go a long time without your instrument, you really start to miss it. But if you don't play music at all, not having instruments in your home is not a big deal. So the sting of exile for the Israelites is all the more worse because they did have a home. They did dwell in the land with a glorious temple. They did experience what it was like to be God's people, to see him fulfill his promise to them. And then it was snatched away. And it creates for them an existential crisis. We talked a little bit about this last week, two weeks ago. Who are we? Is their question. Does God still love us? Did he leave us? Is this it? We broke our end of the deal. So the Babylonians are ruling over them. And they are in exile for 70 years. And then the Persians take over. And that takes us to chapter 1 of Ezra Nehemiah. As I said, it's one book in the Hebrew Bible. Somewhere along the way it was split into two. Don't exactly know why, uh, but it would serve us to go through one book today. So I'm, uh, I hope to make three points today. Uh, one, hope renewed. Two, hope missed, and three, hope fulfilled. Okay, the first point. We get good news here. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Ezra. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the Lord of the mouth, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And this is, this is what it was. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. So here's this king, this guy, it's just, he's not an Israelite king, he's a Persian king. And for some crazy reason, he's like, I need to let the Jews return home. Nebuchadnezzar, the previous king, was not about that. He wanted to oppress them. 
And this new guy comes in, Cyrus, and Scripture tells us that the sovereign God stirred up his heart so that he said, okay, Israelites, come on back. We're going to play nice again. This is going to be good. I will let you return to your land, and you can rebuild your temple. When the Babylonians took over, they destroyed the temple, the one that they worked so hard to build, the one that was a glorious representation of them as God's people and God's communion with them. And so he alludes to this promise in Jeremiah 29, verse 12, and it says, Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So what do we see here? First, God's judgment on his people was not final. He's using a Persian king to bring about his purposes to bring the people back to the land. So you can imagine what Israel is feeling when they hear this. They're in exile. It's traumatic. They're probably forgetting their identity at some point. At least a generation has passed away by now. The narrative of we are God's unique, special, chosen people is probably waning. And then out of nowhere, <laughs> this Persian conqueror says, there's still hope. There is still hope. God has not forgotten you. There is this glimmer of hope on the horizon. There are three main themes throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. I apologize in advance because it's a lot of material. <laughs> so bear with me, but I'm going to fly through this and it will help us understand this completely. So in Ezra's chapters 1 through 6, three guys lead the rebuilding of the temple and the altar. Sheshbazar, Zerubbabel, and Jeshua. If you have any pets or children you need to name, there you go. That's free. Um, and as they rebuild this, per Cyrus's permission, they also start to re restore some of the, the rhythms of worship in the people's lives. Right? There were, there were all kinds of temple duties and, and things that they uh, did to commune with God. Remember, we, we talked about that. So they lead the rebuilding of the altar so that you can, again, do sacrifices and offerings to God. Uh, they also celebrate the Passover in chapter 6 here. Uh, and so you can maybe loosely liken these things to, to us gathering here today. Right? It's a rhythm. We meet weekly on Sundays. We sing truth about God. We remind our hearts of certain things. We take communion. These are natural rhythms in our lives designed to point us to who God is and who we are. And so these things, again, be, begin taking root uh, in Israel this is a, a way of reestablishing themselves as God's people. So geographically, they're going back, but also they're restoring some of the rhythms that they had before. We, too, need these reminders. You may wonder sometimes why we do these rhythms, or they might feel monotonous, but something is happening in them. We have a tendency to wander and to lean towards what we are hearing the most of. When you consider a healthy marriage, it's not possible without intentional time set aside 
with one another. Right? Do I know that my wife Kelly loves me? Yes. Does that mean I don't see her and that we don't spend quality time together and that it is not <clears throat> excuse me, meaningful for her to look across the table at me and tell me that she loves me? Of course not. Of course that's deeply meaningful. Of course that matters. In the same way, the people of God need reminders. We are a distracted bunch and we live in a time and age where information is flying at us constantly. So, the monotony of church going, the seeming unglorious nature of reading the Bible, be reminded and encouraged that it's doing something in you. As small as it may seem, as small as it may feel, it's weighty, it's meaningful. We need reminders. So the good news is that the Israelites have the edict to return, they're rebuilding the temple. But in Ezra 4.4, we see a little problem. The Israelites face opposition from this group of people in the land, and they are forced to cease rebuilding that temple. It says that they started bribing counselors to frustrate the plans of the Israelites. I don't know exactly what they did. I just know that the Israelites were really afraid. And there's a very interesting tension here that we should probably notice. I thought God was for us, right? And he gives the edict from Cyrus, and we have permission to go back, and we're building, and we've got all this momentum. And then, ugh, these crazy guys start threatening us and telling us that we better stop or else. So much so that they are afraid that whatever excitement they had going on is now squelched. So much so that they stop. Is this it? Have God's plans to return the people been foiled? No. Thankfully, circumstance is not an indication that God's favor on your life has ceased. We have to be careful about looking to these things as defining God's desire to uh, bless us or prosper us in the holistic sense. His plans are often meandering roads, not so much straight lines. We don't tend to like that, do we? It doesn't sit well with us. God, I just want in my life to go from A to B. Please and thank you. It's just not the reality even for God's people, even under his hand when he's doing something to bring them back to the land. We want calm seas with no waves, breezes, not winds, shade, but no gloomy skies. We have a tendency to tolerate disappointment so long as it's expected. We approve of the Bible's teachings on suffering and hardship and disappointment until we're actually thrust into the lion's den. We like this idea of being refined by fire until we're on the verge of the furnace, right? The reality is, though, that God's people, even though he loves them and desires to bless them and will do that, does not exempt them from disappointment. 
It is merely that in the midst of our disappointment, God is with us and caring for us, and he will never leave us in it. So, good news. Another king takes over. One of the governors says, hey, these guys were building a temple. They stopped, but uh, can you take a look, make sure they were approved to do it in the first place? His name is Tatanai. He writes a letter to the new king, Darius, to tell him about the Israelites rebuilding this temple. And he's basically like, go check, make sure this is legit. And Darius is like, yeah, looks good. I see uh, in XX year BC, uh, Cyrus approved this. And uh, not only do I give them permission to build, but they can use all my resources to do it too. Isn't that insane? Why would this guy give this group of people money and permission? It's almost like... There's a sovereign God that controls everything, and he's taking care of his people, right? Feel the roller coaster nature of things. Exile, edict to return and rebuild. Can't build anymore. Oh, yes, you can again. Permission to continue, and here's a bunch of resources. Okay, second theme here, Ezra. He is a priest, and he is skilled in the laws of Moses. That basically just means he knows the Bible really well and he teaches it to people. Uh, and then we have another king here, Artaxerxes. And he basically also gives Ezra whatever he needs in order to conduct this temple service. Uh, let's look at Ezra 7:23, and then 25 through 26 real quick. I sent these late, so they may not be on the screen. Uh, 7:23 says... This is Artaxerxes talking to Ezra. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of heaven. Whatever you need, I'm with you, Ezra. 25 through 26 say, And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation or uh, of his goods, excuse me, or for imprisonment. So Artaxerxes, too, gives full and unwavering support to the people of God. He's like, Ezra, teach the Bible. Drench the land in it. You have whatever you need to do this. Coincidence? I don't think so. I think God cares for his people and is bringing them back to the land. So we see the temple is being rebuilt. The Torah, or God's word, is being taught again. Israel is on a fast track back to the promised land to prosper as God's people once again. That's where Nehemiah comes in. He is a cupbearer to the king, the same king, Artaxerxes, and one day he's standing there holding his glass of wine, as cupbearers do for the king. And the king looks at him and is like, what's wrong? Something's wrong. And he says, don't tell me a cold. You have a cold either because I can tell that something's up. And Nehemiah is like, yeah, you're right. My friends just told me what terrible shape Jerusalem is in after the exile, that the temple is destroyed uh, that the people are being oppressed, and it is just wearing me. And the king sees it, knows it, recognizes it, 
And Nehemiah's like, it's hilarious. There's this little sentence in there um, where the king looks at him and is like, what's wrong? And Nehemiah's like, I threw up a quick prayer to God and then I said, can I go back? Can I go to Jerusalem? Can I rebuild the walls of the city? And the king gives him permission. The king says, yeah, go ahead. How long will you be gone? Sure, that'll be fine. No problem. So we have everything in place here, right? For the people of God to return to their rightful land. Temples being rebuilt. Word of God is being taught again. Nehemiah here has permission again to go back to rebuild the walls of the city. Then we hit a little more complication. Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 1. Now when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Verse 7, when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. Verse 11, and our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Uh, what is it? God, are you going to bring us back or not? We keep hitting these roadblocks. We keep getting these hiccups. The roller coaster of returning to the land to be God's people once again continues. Do you feel the weight of the push and pull here? Oh, it's hard to even get through. If you read this, you're just like waiting. Give me the glory moment where it's, yay, people back. They have the land again. Temple rebuilt. God's word being taught. But we have more meandering roads, right? More disappointment. More wondering if it will fall apart. More wondering if God is still with his people or if he had a change of heart or if we did something wrong. But Nehemiah admirably, admirably and courageously presses on. The city walls eventually do get rebuilt. And they are courageous in the face of difficulty and they succeed. And if we stopped there, you'd say, oh, great. Well, let's look to these two books, historically one book, as... Um, Templates for leadership, which is frequently what they're, what they're used for. Do you like Ezra? Do you like Sheshbazar, Jeshua? Do you like Nehemiah? Be courageous, face these difficulties, lead the people back to the land, right? Follow them, be courageous, trust God. All good things, all good things, right? But if you look a little closer at the narrative, we don't have... A happy ending. Ezra chapter 3, after the completion of the temple, we see that there were people that were not around for the first temple that see the second temp temple built. And then there were people that saw the first temple that were still alive that see the second temple built. And this is what he says about it. Many of the priests, this is verse 12, chapter 3 of Ezra, many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses Old men who had seen the first house, that is temple, 
wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the shout was heard far away. So it's weird, right? We have another tension. The temple is being rebuilt. They should be happy, right? Except they saw the glory of the first temple, which was amazing. They saw it, and then they see this little dinky second temple, and they weep. They're like, this isn't it. These aren't the glory days. Did you see the first temple? They're undone. They're not happy about it. Causes sorrow for those who saw the first temple. Not rejoicing, not joy. It's not, we're back home again. It's, this, was, this isn't home. You should have seen our home back then. So disappointment in the temple. Two, what about God's word? How's God's word permeating the people? Well, let's see. Ezra 9. I'll explain after I read. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons. So that the holy race, key phrase, has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. Okay, this is not about race. It is about the people of God being called to be a unique people, not worshiping the gods of other lands, not mixing themselves up with that. And so therefore they were commanded in the Torah, in the Bible, in God's word, not to intermarry with these people. Because generally what happens when they intermarry is they start adopting those religions. They start committing idolatry. They run away from the God of Israel, not to him. So even though Ezra got this permission from the king to go to appoint all these people, the word of God is now going to be the rule of the land again. You find out not only are people intermarrying, with those of other religions, it's the leaders, right? Did you catch it? In this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. It's not only the lay person, it's the people on top. The leaders are committing idolatry too. So the Torah, God's word, not so much. Everything was in place. What's going on? And our last disappointment comes in Nehemiah 13. Courageous guy. Faced all kinds of opposition. Prayed this beautiful prayer of corporate repentance. God, we've turned away from you. We have sinned. Have mercy on us. Everything's going well. The people that threaten them, he's like, take up some weapons. Trust God. We'll be fine. Build through it. You can do it. See what we read in Nehemiah 13. Then again, I'll give you some more context. Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah 
a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers and contributions for the priests. Eliashib is Tobiah's relative. These rooms that are being addressed in that verse, filled with all of these things, grain offerings and frankincense, and the list goes on, were specially dedicated to the house of God for use in the temple to supply the Levites and the priests what they needed to worship God properly. And Eliashib is like, hey, cousin, or whoever he is. We don't know if he's a cousin. He's a relative. He's like, I got a nice place for you to stay. Tim Mackey says he, he sets him up in a nice Airbnb and so desecrates the temple service. He's like, these things of God that are set apart as holy to be used strictly for God's purposes, we're just going to use them for our own comfort and convenience and nepotism at, at an all-time high, right? Tobiah gets special treatment because he's my relative. The temple service, worship of God, eh, personal comfort is more important, right? Then we see more mixed marriages and Nehemiah's ultimate downfall. Remember the people were marrying those of other religions and then we read this in Nehemiah 13:25 And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves Nehemiah goes from courageous leader to coercive jerk People are sinning, and he starts beating them up. Not okay. He starts beating people and leading by manipulation instead of humble trust in God. And so the culminations of all of these things is just, it falls apart. Disappointment. We thought for sure we had it. The pieces were all there. We had good leaders by human standards. And then it imploded on itself. Not only that, but G.K. Beale says that although the nation was physically back in the land, they remained in their spiritual exile and physical exile since it was dominated by hostile foreign powers and the majority of the restoration prophecies had not yet been fulfilled. So God made all kinds of prophecies about what would happen after the exile. Seventy years, then I'll bring you back. So what we see here is only a partial fulfillment because I'm going to fire off the rest of these promises that God made. Isaiah 11 and 66, he says that there will be peace between Jews and Gentiles, between those who are ethnically Israelite and the other lands. Is that the case? No. It also says that there will be a rebuilt temple bigger than any other, and God's presence will be in it. That's from Ezekiel 40 to 48. Is that the case? No. This temple's weaker. It's not good. It's not as attractive. Temple service is being desecrated. It says that Israel will no longer be under foreign domination. That's not the case. They are still ultimately under the rule of the Persians. 
There's a new creation promised. There's a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon Israel. There are miracles of healing. There's a great mass of redeemed Gentiles streaming into Israel. And ultimately, resurrection. These are all things that were promised. So when we look at Israel's return back to their promised land, we can say it was only a piece. It's only a part of the fulfillment. It was ultimately pointing to something else. Even when the stars align, courageous leaders do the hard work of returning and rebuilding, there's something missing still from the people of God. We need more than right circumstances and mostly good leaders. Fast forward a couple hundred years, the temple was ultimately destroyed in 70 A.D. Well, what do we need? We need a temple that can't be destroyed. We need God's word to be in us rather than outside of us. We need the power to obey God's commands. We need a city that isn't threatened by enemies and that can't be corrupted by the sway of human hearts. We need a leader who is not only courageous, but is also meek, both strong and compassionate, filled with truth and grace. Ultimately, we need a substitute. We need the one to whom all of these narratives were pointing. The one who referred to himself as the ultimate temple, Jesus Christ, the only righteous one who in John 2 said that you can destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was beaten, he was whipped, he was tortured and crucified. We need him who is the true word of God, who's the son of God that became human to reveal God to us, who not only taught the words of God to the people, but actually fulfilled them. We need the law to be written in our hearts, not stone tablets. We need a new heaven and a new earth, the holy city, which Nehemiah attempted to build with human hands, but points ultimately to the new Jerusalem, to the recreation built by God, not man, inhabited fully by God who dwells with us and us with him. We need our God to once and for all say, they are mine. We need him to destroy death, to wipe away every tear, all mourning, all pain. The tension in Ezra, Nehemiah, and the fulfillment or not fulfillment, is resolved in a person, Jesus Christ. Will God love them, or will he leave them? Will he punish them once and for all for their wickedness? How can he be just and still bless this disobedient people? He can send his son in their place to take Israel's punishment and yours and my punishment onto himself so that we can now be a part of the new and the true Israel that will dwell with God forever. We will be and are God's people in the fullest sense, loved, redeemed, washed, renewed, never to experience disappointment again. When we see this glory it changes the way that we approach things, changes the way that you approach coming here, changes the way that you approach this, 
None of these things are means to get to God. They are merely gifts of God. And as we see him fulfilling all things perfectly, bringing us out of exile ultimately to this new city, this new heaven, new earth, his words become increasingly sweet to our souls. The church, this new temple, becomes a delight for you in which you get to join other redeemed sinners in praise of the one who accomplished it all. We can now go out and selflessly labor for our city, knowing that whatever we lose on earth by serving and emptying ourselves is one trillionth of the glory that you will see in the new city. Let us be a people who see our hopelessness and our disappointment turned into everlasting hope in Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you so much that though we have a thousand burdens that we carry, though we have a thousand things that we should do or ought to do and fail to do as we should or as we ought, we have one who did it all. You, your son, Jesus, the only righteous one, who lived perfectly in our place, who died at the hands of sinners like us, who rose victorious over all of that so that we can have life, the guarantee of life, Lord, that life does not depend on us like it did the Israelites in returning to the promised land. You took the burden, you achieved it, and you stand giving grace upon grace to undeserving souls like us. Thank you, in Christ's name, amen.